Welcome to the Sex Magic Podcast, where we explore the connections between sexuality and spirituality, the various cultures and traditions of sex magic, and conversations about everything in between, led by a coven of curious modern witches. If you'd like to follow us on social media, our Instagram is Sex Magic Podcast, our website is sexmagicpodcast.com, and if you want to send us an email, sexmagicpodcast at gmail.com. Today you have your co-host, that's me, Isabella Frappier, if you can't tell from my accent already. I am super duper excited, that's right, double whammy, to talk to our guest today. Today I'm going to be chatting to Edgar Fabian Frias, who is a non-binary, queer, indigenous, viraraka, and brown multidisciplinary artist, curator, educator, and psychotherapist. I mean, listeners. Hits so many different levels. I'm so excited. I think we'll have to be talking all day today. Edgar was born in East Los Angeles in 1983, received dual BAs, that's right, two degrees in psychology and studio art from the University of California, Riverside. In 2019, they received an MA in clinical mental health counseling at Portland State University in Oregon with an emphasis on interpersonal neurobiology and somatic psychotherapy. Frias is also a 2022 candidate for an MFA in art practice at the University of California, Berkeley. Edgar, welcome. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. And like you said, I feel like there are so many intersections here that we could definitely <laughs> talk all day. <laughs> I know. I, I have a, a Mars Gemini, so I have like so many different interests and I've only now, as I've gotten a little older, figured out how to weave them together. And when I was mm. researching you and learning about you, I was just like kindred spirit here. <laughs> yeah, my my um, son is in Gemini, so definitely <laughs> expansive and love learning little bits about everything. You know, it's yes. hard for me to just, yeah, have one path. So <laughs> I love my Gemini sons. I'm a Libra sun, Libra moon and Scorpio rising. And then with that Mars, uh, Gemini, I'm just always like, I want everything to be fair. Just, I want to talk about sex and death and magic. And I want to talk about 20 different ways those relate. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's my favorite. So I would love to hear a little bit about your personal journey. Cause for me, it feels like your professional journey is so expansive and exploratory and and fluid and also all kind of intersects and comes back to some really important like key themes so could you start by kind of telling our listeners a little bit sort of about yourself and your journey yeah so I definitely did not start off that way <laughs> I would say <laughs> um you know I grew up in a small town in Southern California and um growing up I yeah I would say like you know like many people I kind of had the idea in my mind that I needed to get one job one career and really struggled with that being a Gemini and being someone who's just really excited about many different things um and my parents really pushed me uh to study something that you know I could make money from so mm -hmm. I really loved psychology and that was what really pushed me in that direction first mm -hmm. and you know as I grew in that and started being a therapist and started working with people I also knew that you know there was something always nagging there and that you know mm -hmm. I had always you know, even if I had been doing therapy or studying to be a therapist, I had always been creating art, I'd always been finding ways to kind of weave that into my life. So 
um, after a while, I think um, I finally took that big leap and um, started to actually, you know, kind of weave them all together and started living in a way that felt a lot more in alignment with um, my truth, which is, yeah, that I want to be expansive and want to do all the things that I find exciting and fun and yeah, and I think that's really what's led me to where I'm at now. Where, um, But it's definitely been a journey and it hasn't been easy. <laughs> it's definitely taken a lot of therapy and a lot of people encouraging me and uh, a lot of risks too. Mm. Do you remember what your first medium for art was? Oh, that's such a wonderful question. I would say writing, definitely. Mm. Um, as a young person, I used to always have journals. Uh, writing and collage, and those are two things that I think I really connect with still so much. Um, yeah, I have so many journals from when I was like a young person, just um, with both collage and, you know, just different things I would get from the newspaper or just different um, things I would write about in my life. Mm. So yeah, those are definitely the two mediums that I really, I feel connected with the most as a kid. I love that. So it's like writing being, you know, the air energy, the intellect communicating. And then with collage, I'm like, is that immediately already feels to me like such a symbol for the way you've sort of explored so many different aspects, but then integrated them into this one piece. Yeah, there's definitely a weaving. And I feel like the weaving, you know, being Bidarika, there's uh, my people really work a lot with yarn and create mm. yarn paintings and also weave together Nyerika, which are also known as Eyes of God. Wow. Um, and um, so weaving has been something that's been really profound in my life. And collage, I feel, is like weaving. And so I feel like just kind of expanding beyond that and weaving also disciplines, right? And yeah. career paths <laughs> together. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. What? I love that visual of like, now I have weaving and collaging just sort of swirling through my mind. <laughs> what was the sort of moment? Because therapy is so wonderful and so important. And we've talked about that in some other episodes, but for me in my personal life, it's key, but it's also very like binary and limited and very focused on like the intellect and communication and, and those very like specific disciplines. What was your experience in your personal life as you were starting to practice and seeing clients or therapists, seeing patients, not clients, right? Um, clients or your clients? people. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you were helping other humans, we'll say in that, in that discipline, what sort of, were you already exploring some of these like spiritual, creative, artistic elements in your personal life as you were seeing patients and clients one-on-one? Yeah, I, you know, so I studied at Portland State University, like you said earlier, and in the program, it was very specifically focused on diagnoses mm. and on uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. And so that was challenging. Um, and I'm so grateful that I was able to find a group of people um, at this place in Portland called the Meta Counseling Clinic. Mm-hmm. And Meta stands for Mindful Experiential Therapy Approaches. And through that um, community, I feel like it really helped me find a way of engaging and connecting with people that really felt way more in alignment than what I was learning in school. So I um, have like a really interesting story. In my last semester in the program, we had to take this class where our professor 
Center was really like kind of set, told us we have to like really contextualize people here within the cognitive behavioral mm-hmm. framework. And I remember writing him an email because I was really mad after that class and just saying, <laughs> <laughs> and then just letting him know, I said, you know, I've learned about all this. I know about this whole field. And I'm really excited to move into other paradigms. And there's so much to learn within other paradigms, you know, more. And in, in when I say that, I mean, like, you know, somatic psychotherapy, holistic therapy, therapy that engages the different states of self, states of consciousness. There's so much that I was really excited to learn about that I was like, I don't really want to spend more time learning about diagnoses or mm. the cognitive behavioral model. And he was totally open to that, especially because he saw that that's how I wanted to work. And yeah, so I would say that that has been a way that really helped me get out of that because um, I also felt that rigidity and also, um, yeah, in some ways you could see it as like a, a another force of c- colonialism or another force mm-hmm. of like Western domination. And that's been a big gift for myself and working with people is that I've been able to connect with folks who, you know, the traditional mediums of psychoanalysis many times don't fit into everyone's like experience. And there are so many folks who are in, let's say inpatient spaces or who um, end up really needing care, who a lot of it has to do with spiritual things or things that are connected to not having the right support, whether that's relational, right? Or spiritual or cultural support. And so there's, um, I really saw the reason for someone like myself existing within these spaces as someone who can kind of traverse between Um, these different disciplines or ways of understanding. I so appreciate you saying that. That's such an important element. And I've really been through doing my own anti-racism work personally and professionally over the past two years more intensely. I've been really realizing, I work with one-on-one clients and I also create conscious communities. And I've been really realizing how much, I think there is a lot of value in like one-on-one work. And some people really benefit from that and desire that. Yes. And for me, this is a big yes. And I think we can do a disservice when we exclusively focus on that and we're not looking at community care and different types of care and how that looks for the individual. I can just absolutely see how colonialism, racism, even like the structures of patriarchy have this idea that like, and I say patriarchy because when I think of a therapist, like the first thing that comes to mind in terms of media representation is what like this middle-aged white guy in like a leather chair in an office. And you're going to just talk to him about your problems and he's going to like fix them. It's just not what works for most people or many people. And it's so rooted in this idea of like, one white guy, i.e. collective white guys fixing problems rather than looking at like, I try to work now in a permaculture model of like what is going wrong in the environment. And that's so unique to each person. Yeah, and I'm so, so grateful to the people who've really um, carved out the field of feminist psychology, because that's been so, so helpful for me to really um, make sure I weave that in into Mm -hmm. any therapy work that I do is an understanding of the context, right? Knowing that, yeah, people are in many times, all of us are in really traumatizing, (laughs) you know, patriarchal structures that are leaving an imprint, and that we're navigating that. And there are so many dis- quote unquote disorders out there that are really a result of these patriarchal systems. And 
Uh, I so, so connect with what you were just saying, because I literally, the last job I had before I kind of became a full-time artist, um, our main psychologist was a white man who was so misogynist and mm. problematic. And all the people doing the therapy work were all femmes, queer people. And yeah, there's something so gross about that model, you know, and I totally understand it. Yeah, especially that other model, you know, that you named where people are broken and there's something wrong with people mm-hmm. and here's the therapist to help fix them. That to me, yeah, that's also another model that I do not really agree with. Um, it, you know, in Meta, we really learned that it's a shared journey. You're really entering into a shared experience with someone and that, yeah, you're really there to kind of support and guide and coax, you know, and witness and also, yeah, be vulnerable and be honest too, because you're also a human being. <laughs> and I think that that's to me where, um, yeah, that human connection really can disappear when you kind of really sit in those, you know, really rigid um, identities of helper, you know, or saver or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I love that you said the word fix. Like that is so important. I I came to my work through the landscape of birth work and being a doula specifically. And the thing that I think I was most struck by during that training was being trained how to hold space. Like that was such a new concept to me. And as someone that is, I'm a cisgender woman and I've been socialized female. And so much of my socialization is around fixing and solving problems and giving advice. And it was so triggering and also relaxing to hear for the first time in my life, actually the best way for you to serve these birthing folks is through holding space and getting yourself out of the way and just kind of creating this container. And that's really what I've carried through in in my work now. And I really hear you like speaking to that portion of like, we're not here to fix people rather to sort of just, and I'm kind of working through some ideas about the whole like be a mirror thing that people say a lot in the community, Um, but how to just create a space where someone can sort of feel supported, I suppose, in helping themselves. Could you speak a little bit to that? Because I feel like for me, um, when we're in any healing modality, I've noticed how much people, and I use this term really loosely, want to put like a guru vibe onto you. And I'm like, no, no, I want you to feel like a guru for yourself in your own life. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that really um, was powerful in the training that I got, so I trained to be a somatic psychotherapist through a practice known as Hakomi. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the biggest um, takeaways from the practice is really about guiding someone towards themselves and, Mm -hmm. And being there in relationship with them as that happens, you know, and I think that really encourages uh, resiliency in many ways, because I think a lot of us are so trained, especially in the society that we live, that really um, kind of kind of asks us to kind of bring our awareness away from the body. It's so um, important to have people guide us towards the body, mm-hmm. towards the self, and to just be there to support that process and to really, because um, I think also there is obviously something really important about being in relationship, right? Where we need that healing many times of just having someone witnessing us, having yes. experience. And I think um, 
Yeah, but I also know that, yeah, and I think challenging that by really um, honoring the wisdom and the intuition that comes from that process and really naming that as really what's helping, you know, is that you're really almost, you're depending on the witness, uh, on being able to be there as a witness, and also you're depending on the intuition arising. And Mm -hmm. that really, I feel, can can help alleviate some of that, right, with your naming that people sometimes want that from you. Yeah. Yeah. You're, and, and in a way, like kind of coaxing is really helping someone say like, you have that guru inside of you too. You have that part of you that can always witness, always kind of take a step back and see what you're needing. And that to me is like one of the strongest things that you can really teach someone because that will stay with you forever. And, you know, as someone, you know, you mentioned that I um, studied interpersonal neurobiology. One of the big uh, teachings in that is that our um, right hemispheric prefrontal cortex is a place of integration and that integration really has a witnessing aspect. And so Mm. we need um, a part of our brain that's able to really make sense of our experience and bring it into language and also bring it into relationship and bring it into cognition. And I think when you're um, with someone who's just helping you kind of bring your awareness back to yourself, you're really building that capacity. It's just like meditating. You're just like really kind of working at that practice because it is a practice. Yeah, that's so important to remember too. And something that I would bear great value to remind myself of every day. of like so much of this is strengthening a muscle, not trying to be strong, right? Right. <laughs> and I and I want to just give a shout out to, to our listeners because I, I maybe I could have begun the episode with this caveat, but it's irrelevant now. So I'm going to say it. Uh, we're talking today about like different types of, you know, therapy and support and modalities. And if traditional talk therapy or CBT is working for you, if getting a diagnosis or getting medication or getting both those things is working for you, awesome. That's great. Like I fully celebrate that. And that's not really what we're speaking on today. So I just, I don't want those people to feel like left out. Um, and if you're looking for an episode more specific to that, listen to the one with Nicoletta Heidegger, because she's a LMFT. And we kind of talk more about that. Um, but I, I just wanted to put that, that in. I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. And it's same. I don't want me speaking in this way to make it seem like those um, modalities don't have a lot of benefit and that diagnoses don't have benefit. Um, I think these are just, um, yeah, I think there are processes and steps that we take in our healing journey. And I know for myself, I got a diagnosis of having anxiety um, when I was really young and that was so helpful. Mm. It really helped me understand a part of myself that I didn't have words for. Yes, that's so true. And I feel like these things are helpful and, and I'm not trying to be flippant or minimize them, but I feel like they get a lot of airtime, <laughs> you know, and, and we want, I want to talk about things, you know, to, to gather with you today that like, maybe don't get that much airtime. Cause that's the stuff that I wish I had known when I was a teenager right. and not to say that learning things about the ways that I'm neurodiverse, um, I haven't super much spoken about this on the podcast, but just to lightly touch on, you know, I suffer from anxiety, sometimes depression. I'm more on the fast paced Mars Gemini anxiety front. Um, and, and I have issues with neurodiversity specifically around kind of like uh, mild autism. So I have found those types of um, labels, quote unquote, very valuable to learn. Okay, this isn't something wrong with me. You know, I'm doing air quotes a lot this episode, listeners. So just imagine them when you feel like I'm saying them. 
Um, but to be like, okay, this is maybe just a bit of the way my brain is wired. And for me, that's enough to know. And I don't want medication, any of those types of things. And then once I have kind of that understanding and that self-compassion, now we can move into these complicated, nuanced, you know, different areas that feel Definitely. good. Yeah. And I think that that mirrors in many ways, like the therapeutic process where, you know, I think lots of times I know I went into therapy for my symptoms, quote unquote, right. <laughs> and also doing those air quotes, <laughs> um, I went into therapy because of my symptoms. And then, you know, once you get support and once you kind of learn how to work with them and manage them, then you can move into the other stuff, which is yeah. about expansion and growth and healing trauma. And like, so it is step-by-step. Step and I think they're all very important parts of the healing process. Yeah. And I feel like it also, at least in my personal experience, kind of really speaks to like how resource slash traumatized we are in our nervous systems at the time, how much privilege we have to have access to different healing tools. Like I have to say, twice in my life I've taken medication for mental health and I would say definitely the first time it saved my life and the second time it certainly saved my sanity um and having said that the two hardest things I've ever done in my life was to get off those medications mm. so it's like really and for me as someone connected to a magical practice I was like yeah well this is you know the journey back out you know we, it, to be able to take a pill and not feel like I'm dying in every second of the day is pretty magical. And, we, you know, for me, at least I had to pay a very intense price for that. But I really feel like representation in so many different areas is really important. And right. being able to see and hear, you know, whether it's on a podcast or a TV show, people that look like us, people that sound like us, people that have had similar experiences I'm really grateful, of course, for a lot of my privileges, which I was lucky to get, you know, didn't earn, just was lucky. And one of them is that I had access to magic growing up. And yeah, maybe I received some like bullying and teasing, but my mother uh, was able to really like guide me through a lot of that. And something I've been reflecting on lately is if I hadn't had access to that, I almost definitely in a different system, let's say I was like in foster care or or even like, and I give that as an example of just like, not usually an experience where people get a lot of support and advice and care. Um, but even just having a parent that didn't care, I could have easily gotten funneled into a system around, you know, schizophrenia. I could have gotten that diagnosis rather than, okay, this is maybe part of your magic. You need to learn how to tap into and then integrate. And so I really appreciate you speaking to how the the community aspects are important. The individual aspects are important. And that it's not like, oh, I'm going to come in, give you a diagnosis. And like, I just roll my eyes at CBT because I didn't have any benefit from it. But I know tons of people do. <laughs> um, but it's so important that we have those really humanistic, let's say, approaches to care. Yeah, and that we can expand our cultural understanding of different experiences um, that people have. Um, for example, you know, you bring up schizophrenia and I know, um, a lot of folks that I've worked with have, you know, shared hearing voices. And I know a lot of people that I work with outside of therapy hear voices, right? And, you know, and I think that to label all those experience as an illness can be really damaging, right? And 
And also, as we've been saying, can also be really helpful if that's yes. something that you're really needing at the time too. Um, yeah. So really just holding both of those. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to really share other experiences and to share that um, there, there are ways that the Western um, medical system doesn't understand everything, you know, <laughs> like, and, and that could really benefit from um, other cultural understandings of, yeah, of magic, of, of ancestral connection, of connection mm-hmm. to spirits or guides. And I feel like self-inquiry for me is like the most important tool that I use in any aspect of my life. And as like a healer provider, as a support person, no matter who's listening, you are that to someone and some people at some times encouraging self-inquiry kind of looping back to what we were saying earlier is so important so even just with this example of hearing voices like just asking yourself or the other person who's sharing this with you like how do you feel about that because one person might be like awesome I feel really connected to my ancestors and it gives me great info in my life it's like cool no worries get it and then other people might be like I feel fucking crippled like I I experience I feel depressed I feel suicidal this is unbearable you know so that that humanistic and self-inquiry approach is so important. Definitely. Yeah. I'm wondering with the interpersonal neurobiology, and I feel like I'm going to jump all over with you today because I'm just so excited to like ask you questions and learn from you. Does, does any of that involve kind of neuroplasticity or like neurolinguistic techniques? Could you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, so the field of interpersonal neurobiology is a pretty interdisciplinary field. It was started by a psychologist named Dan Siegel in um, Los Angeles. He's at UCLA. And um, one of the things that I love about the field is that it's really looking at um, different paradigms that Mm. um, it's in many ways challenging, like the mechanistic regimented paradigm and really wanting to weave in other many forms of understanding. And so neuroplasticity is really huge. I think that that's one of the big takeaways from the field is that Mm. our brains are incredibly plastic and that we can really work with them and that, you know, um, the field of interpersonal neurobiology is really looking at how the brain develops within relationship. That's a big part of the field. And relationships are, of course, are not regimented. You know, they're systems, they're expansive, they're emergent. And those are things that the field really looks at. And so, of course, they also integrate wisdom traditions, um, uh, different indigenous traditions. And that, to me, is something that's really exciting. And also, as you would imagine, even though I was learning this at a university, um, and it's all based on neuroimaging research, um, there was still a lot of denigration of the field and seeing it as like witchy or or hippie. <laughs> and that's part of it is because, you know, we're so, so trained to have a mechanistic perspective and that that's like the only thing that's valid, you know, especially in academia, you, you, that's still so huge there. Even just the idea that people, like I've been really thinking about this a lot lately. I think so many people view science as a religion mm-hmm. and I love spirituality I love God in all God forms you know whether that's like an orgasm you know whether that's prayer whatever that looks like and I feel for me and this is just me personally speaking but for me organized religion is the best way to distance yourself from God energy mm-hmm. and I really feel like science has become this organized religion where people like can't even question it anymore. And 
even like studies where we're just saying, oh, well, we have to absolutely believe them. Well, maybe we should also look at who's funding them and all of these different layers. And if it's working for us and if it's encouraging for us, like that's beautiful as well. It's so interesting to me that people are so simultaneously vilifying and glorifying of science. Like there's not a lot of gray area. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it organizes so much of our reality. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm obviously someone that's pretty pro science still. Mm-hmm. Right. And also, I'm also someone that's pretty pro indigenous epistemologies and I'm pro witchcraft and pro animism. And I think those are all things that science um, is wanting to understand, is trying to incorporate. And I am witnessing like science really trying to um, contend with its colonialist, violent, patriarchal history, right? And um, and I think that's something that's not talked about a lot that I think is important. And, you know, being at a university right now, that's something that I'm really appreciating learning more about is the, yeah, the history of science and how, mm. you know, we're um, kind of sold this religion, as you said, of science in a very clean cut, mm-hmm. like progress oriented way. And it is, it has so much problematic stuff in its history mm-hmm. and in its current, you know, existence. Um, and as you said, there's, there is so much dirty money that's like woven into what is seen as like valid scientific research. And yeah, and I think that is where I hold some sort of empathy for people who really disavow science, you know, just because it has been such a violent thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like even, and please tell me if you think this is like way off base, but I wonder even like one of the things that I've really noticed over the years is a lot of practices, a lot of beliefs, a lot of tools and techniques that are more traditionally indigenous wisdom have now been able to be confirmed by science of like, yeah, this works. But meanwhile, for so many years, those things were already working anecdotally. And do you feel like even on some level, like the science being able to like quote unquote validate the efficacy of that is kind of then colonizing the technique yeah definitely and it's problematic to have to turn towards science right yeah. have to have science be the, the white man healing you right like we were talking about in therapy right have the white man validating and saying that your experience is real um there is something very problematic about that um yeah yeah I wish we would, um, as a society, value discernment a little bit more of like, if this technique is working for someone in their life, and maybe it's worked for generations of people, let's just let it be, you know? <laughs> you know, that's something that I, it, I I remember just with you saying that in um, my graduate program, we learned, I forget who did this study. And of course, it's funny turning towards science again. Um, yeah. <laughs> Someone did a study where essentially they showed that, like, they did an analysis of healing modalities across the world, and they showed Mm. that as long as the person had a strong belief in the practitioner, and as long as the practitioner had a strong belief in their modality, that that was really kind of what you needed in many ways for healing to happen. And I really appreciate that. It's kind of a little, it could be disappointing to hear that, depending on what your orientation is, but... um, (laughs) I, I also really appreciated that, that it is like, it is creating a container with someone and really having that container hold each other. And um, 
I think that is something that I find really exciting about being an artist is that a lot of artists are really finding ways to create containers or create ways of engaging or understanding reality that are really, um, yeah, kind of expanding, I feel like, what we see as containers or as possibilities even. And I think that's also one of the things I really enjoy about the world of art is there is so much more flexibility and fluidity Mm. and also allowing of that emergence too right as you said that uh, having spirit kind of emerge can only happen if you're really letting it if you're witnessing it following it allowing it to happen instead of having like these rigid boundaries around how you're able to connect with someone yeah that makes so much sense like if I feel like for me it's such a big like yes and it's such a big expansion away from all types of binary thinking of, yes, maybe it is really validating for one person or for many people to have a traditional practice be scientifically validated as effective, you know, million quote unquotes there. Um, And then for another person or another many people, it might be like, well, you know what, like, fuck you. I've been knowing that this has been working forever, you know? Like when I went to college briefly, um, I was taking a class in homeopathy and we had one of the most like preeminent homeopaths from my home country there. And I remember they started the lecture by saying, so science can never prove homeopathy. Like that's just a fact. We can never prove it. And for so many people it works. It's very cheap. It's very accessible. It has zero side effects. So who fucking cares? And I was like, I'm in love. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yes, exactly. If it works, if it's helping you, like that's, yeah, that's so huge. And really also honors the intuition of so many people, right? I think that so many communities have found ways to support each other, heal each other, create space for each other to transform. And yeah, I think that there are so many lineages and practices that we can tap into that could be so helpful in that way. Yeah. And I feel too, like I, something I was thinking about a lot yesterday in the garden is like a lot of the practices that I use personally and professionally are around like NLP or for our listeners who aren't familiar, neuro-linguistic programming, um, you know, neuroplasticity, kind of a lot of this stuff. And I was thinking just back to different times in my life where I was so immersed in struggle and trauma. And, and that was, as a very privileged person, that was, we'll have to say self-inflicted, right? Like I don't suffer against any systems, um, I guess, other than the patriarchy. Uh, but I was just thinking like so many of these tools, like I find really effective and I've seen to be very effective, but I also wonder if you could speak a little to how limited limited they are in scope when there's not that kind of community support and care in place. And like a disregard to more of what we were talking about earlier of that like humanistic, individual, more spiritual approach. Yeah, that's such I a just, good like, question. Because I was just like, I know it's like, a complicated question. I know it's an uncomfortable question that I think listeners will probably be annoyed at me for asking. But for me, I was just feeling like this is such a uncomfortable duality. And I don't think there's particularly a good, or a right or wrong answer. But I just, I don't know. I was just curious to see what your thoughts would be. Yeah. Um, 
of what came up as you were asking that question, it reminded me of when I first started my counseling program, I, um, at the same time, connected with some people um, who were really like upset in the queer and trans community in Portland, who really fell undervalued, underrepresented, unseen um, within the art realm. And so I, um, as I was getting my master's degree, I was also helping to organize a queer and trans music and arts festival and I would say by the end of the time that I was helping organize that, which was about five years that I did um, that work, um, I felt like we didn't feel that way anymore. People Mm. felt way more represented. A lot of the folks who were kind of a part of our first festivals had already gotten shows. And so I witnessed like how um, we used art and music as an organizing element to empower ourselves and also to make connections. And I think that has really, really taught me the importance of, um, yeah, not getting stuck within um, feeling like therapy is your only option, right? That, uh, or even like as you're naming that an individual relationship with a therapist is your only option, that there's so many ways to heal and so many ways to empower yourself and to um, work with, you know, emotions that you have, which can be frustration and anger or feeling left out. Um, and I think, I've always turned to my art practice as a sanctuary, as a place where I can really work with those things. And I've also invited people into art practice. And I think that's a big reason why I'm even um, right now in a master's in fine art program, because I want to be an art teacher. And that's something that really excites me is to Mm. really teach people that art is magic. Art is a powerful tool that you can really use to transform your life and um, of course, in, in addition to therapy and, and actual, <laughs> you know, ritual and ceremony, there's so mm-hmm. many. And so kind of really showing that there are many ways that you can really work with these tools and that a lot of people are even discovering or creating new tools today, too. And yeah, I think so all of that together, I think, is also building another way of being and existing, mm-hmm. too. And we're kind of collectively also witnessing each other step into our power more, make connections more. And that, I think, is also giving people that permission of, oh, wow, I can live a different kind of life than what this system has told me mm-hmm. you know, my whole life. And and so we're collectively, in many ways, creating something together like that, too. And so I think that's super important to really also talk about community and the collective as well. That makes sense. Like, that the creativity and art is... I mean, as I'm learning and as we're talking, I'm I'm now kind of seeing it as just one of many tools in sort of like the healing tool belt. So whether it's sort of psychotherapy, whether it's more mentorship, whether it's art, creativity and creation, that these can all be tools to express and, and process your lived experience. Definitely. Yeah. And as a therapist, I worked a lot with art. And as a person, I've worked a lot with Mm. art. And as an organizer, I've also worked a lot with art and helped people process. And I've processed all the time. I think that's why I'm such a prolific artist is because I'm constantly um, using my art practice as a place to process my emotions. And Mm. yeah, I really encourage other people to do that too. And to not see art only as something that has to look good or that has to fit into a certain like value system. It's more of a tool, as you're saying, that we can really work with. And and then also kind of on a, you know, on a larger scale, um, 
I think a lot about the things that organize us, my rising sign is in Virgo. And so I think Mm -hmm. I'd like to look at like organization and structures and my soul card in the tarot deck is a hierophant. So I also think a lot Mm -hmm. about like um, rules and customs and traditions and all those things like organize our lives and they can organize us internally and externally. And so I think art is one of the other things that you can kind of bring in to kind of help disrupt some of that organization and maybe help you create other forms of organization. Yeah. I, I feel like I, this is really, this conversation is really making me want to be more creative. I, uh, I feel like for me, I express my creativity and, and do a lot of healing work through movement and like, again, quote unquote, I'm sure our listeners are annoyed at me <laughs> saying that by now, um, dance, but I like, I want to put it in quotes because I don't, I'm not interested in like much choreographed dance anymore these days, but I teach a, a weekly movement uh, circle. And one of the things I did last week was to tell everyone, make your face like ugly, disgusting, let it contort, let it be complex. Like don't there's a difference between like pretty and beautiful, you know, and being able to express ourselves, whether that's, you know, through painting or writing or movement. I love that you're speaking to like letting it just be what it is and not try to like keep it in this container. What would, what would be some advice you would give to Alice's who are maybe in any spectrum of their lives and experiences, but are wanting to use creativity and art as a way to perhaps connect with themselves or maybe express some of their feelings more? What would be some good like intro steps if they're not, they don't already have a practice? Yeah, so I would say, you know, kind of start where you are. Um, You know, if you have some tools already with you, that's a really great way to help explore. Um, And to really see what feels um, exciting for you. I think excitement is a really powerful drive um, and it's a, a powerful guide that can really, yeah, push you in directions. And I think along with excitement is also fear. I think mm. I know for myself, there have been so many kinds of art practices that I wanted to do, but I've had so much noise around why I should or shouldn't do. Like, for example, movement is one of those things where I I feel like even to this day, it's a boundary that I push a lot because I feel like I'm not supposed to be someone who dances. I'm not supposed to be someone who moves my body. And those are places I think, you know, when you, as you brought up earlier, that self kind of introspection and awareness you start to notice like oh yeah I have like a little wall right here let me see if I can play against this wall and like push <laughs> it a little bit and I think that's how you start to expand and grow in ways that you might like not have um and also I think having a practice that is really personal I think is really important along with mm-hmm. this is a practice that you may or may not show people that you really use it as a tool for yourself I think that that is I for example every day in the morning I usually do like a collage or I write or I find a way to process like mm-hmm. my experience either in the evening as, as I was sleeping or just like in the week and that's super helpful and sometimes I create some gems that I show the world and many times it's just something that I keep for myself as kind of as my journal in many ways Mm, that makes a lot of sense so really like experimenting with what feels like unique and interesting to them and following kind of their excitement and their pleasure 
Yeah, exactly. Excitement and pleasure should always be things that you're you're seeking and coaxing in your work. And mm-hmm. yeah, and also, yeah, noticing where that fear comes up to you, because I think that's also a really powerful guide as well. Mm-hmm. And I remember earlier in our chat, you were sort of speaking a little bit to your Indigenous practices and the, the idea of weaving and collaging and and something that's really interesting to me is, you know, reclamation and the ways that we as magic practitioners do and don't and try not to appropriate different cultures. And for listeners that want to hear more of me talk about that, go back last season and listen to my solo episode on reclamation. But what for you has been your experience of connecting to your ancestors, your culture through maybe magic or art or creation? So my ancestors have been speaking to me as long as I can remember. Mm. They've always been kind of sending me messages. And I think, as you were saying earlier, because I didn't grow up with understanding of that, I, for many years of my life, thought I was going crazy or thought I was needing some real help. And it wasn't until I met other people who really validated that as an experience Mm. um, that it really helped me understand that they were really just trying to guide me and give me support. And um, my ancestors from an early age have really moved me in this direction. And even when um, a story that I like to tell a lot is that when I was in my um, final year in my undergrad, I studied abroad in England and was woken up in the middle of the night by them. And they really let me know that I was a medicine person and that that was my role. And, you know, I was studying art. So I like was like, what? Mm. Like, how do I do that? And I think a lot of my life has really been finding that that kind of path for myself. And mm. it wasn't until just a few years ago that I had a really powerful experience where I had a dream that there was a crystal in the mountains near my parents' house. And that crystal um, had a message for me. It kind of sent me a message. And I feel um, it was really what opened up a conversation with my father, where he finally told me that we are Vidarika and that it was something that he had really in his words, didn't feel was too important to share. And wow. Yeah. And I think that's the effect of colonization, right? And also wanting to be protective because of course the distance that you have from it is it's a it's a safety mechanism, right? It can protect you within this colonialist system. And so I think that's also been what's felt really important about centering this and bringing it into community. And I do a lot of workshops on divination because divination is a really powerful way that I connect with spirit and connect with my ancestors. And it's helped me meet many people who are also on that journey, who are also receiving messages. And I think um, it's also really encouraged a lot of art projects. And, And in my divination sessions, I receive a lot of guidance in terms of projects that I'm meant to work on. And also I know that the ancestors are always working at sending people my way as well. Oh, oh, there's so much within that. Okay. One, I love that you're like, oh, I'm woken up in the night in England and I'm being told that I am a medicine person and I need to integrate this and, oh, but I'm studying art. And to me, I'm just like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, isn't it funny how, I guess, you know, uh, in, a, in a big part due to whitewashing, we compartmentalize so many things. Mm, like, oh, but right. I'm not in med school. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, as I've learned about my people, like the Vidari Tari people in Mexico, they don't 
separate like art and activism and ritual. Those are all things that are really woven together. And there's a big project I did in 2017 that was called Give Us Home Spider. And that project really brought those together where I really did some work um, to really highlight some areas of environmental racism in Southern California. And through that process, I actually discovered that I was a victim also of that um, environmental racism. And so I ended up doing a larger ceremony thanks to some funding that I got from an institution in New York. And so it really was a moment of really reclaiming the right to exist within all those mm-hmm. and of bringing them all together and really witnessing, you know, my yeah, a community that is really doing that work and really needing to see that because as you said, it, it is so, it's it's so ingrained in us to regiment and to separate. Yeah, and I feel like that, th- this feels to me like a really big theme of our conversation today of uh, diagnosis, whether that's like medical, whether that's medical mental, whether that's like any type of diagnosis, it sort of is a compartmentalizing. And and sometimes for us that feels good and that feels like a label and an identity. And other times that can really keep us from exploring, integrating it. And for me, I feel like when we can compartmentalize in a conscious, intentional way of like, I'm going to explore this aspect of myself, I'm going to bring it to light and really explore it, then we can almost like reintegrate in a way that feels more holistic. I'm wondering for you, you know, as someone who is non-binary and queer, how has that kind of intersected and explored with your personal journey and your professional journey and your magic? I know that's a huge question, but like, how has that woven into this fabric? Yeah, I think, you know, going, you know, you bring up expansion. And I think that really is um, something that's been so helpful is that, you know, once I had these compartmentalizing words like non-binary, right, to kind of fit into, it really gave me a place that I could expand into and grow from and, you know, and and realize also that um, not only do I have um, ancestors who are Bidarika, I also have queer and trans ancestors, Mm. right? I also have um, ancestors that are um, connected to the wind, ancestors that are fairies, ancestors that are plants. And it's really expanded um, the connections that I feel. And it's also expanded my understanding of how gender has been weaponized and how bodies have been weaponized. And I think um, someone who's really, really helped me is Alok Vaid Menon. They, their practice is so incredible as someone who's really kind of breaking down the ways that um, these different ideologies have been used to control people and are, are d- directly connected to colonization and white supremacy. And so all that has really helped to kind of add another layer of um understanding that I'm a part of a deep lineage. And that's something I really want to let people know too, is that if you're queer, transgender, expansive, that those are sacred lineages that we're connected to as well. That, you know, just in the same way I was not raised knowing that I am Bidaritari, many people are also not raised knowing that they're a part of a sacred lineage, that there are so many people who've been venerated in community. And it warms my heart so much to know that so many of the people who have been outcasted by this patriarchal heteronormative system are being brought back into the center of community, even though, of course, we're still living in a time where there are horrible, horrible laws and 
you know, violent acts happening against trans, um, specifically, you know, Black, Indigenous people of color in this country. So it's definitely a time still of um, needing um, care, representation, protection, all those things that our communities need. Mm. It's so true and so important. And I think it's really important for all of our listeners, but particularly our white listeners to know, like, just consider, like, as as you're listening to these types of conversations we're having, just consider what your personal privileges are. And instead of just making yourself unhelpful in feeling guilty for them, like figure out how you can use them to leverage and create safety and power and opportunity for people that just didn't get lucky in those ways. Like I'm so sick of people being like, oh, this just happens to me. It's like, yeah, but it's just luck. So like do something with it now. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And yeah, and I love the word accomplice because I think Mm -hmm. accomplice really speaks to the need that, you know, we all need accomplices to know that we're not alone, especially when we're uh, faced with powers of uh, spaces of power imbalance. Mm-hmm. You know, we really need to know that we have that support and that um, people are willing to, you know, speak up, say something, or also, you know, let go of some of their privilege, as you're saying, you know, let go of some of their finances, let go of some of also the social privilege that comes from staying silent too, right? Those are all things that I think are scary. And I know that even as someone who pushes boundaries constantly as well, I know that it is scary to speak up and say things that, you know, not everyone might be excited to hear. And I know that um, that's also where the magic is, you know, in (laughs) being able to do some of that work. Yeah. There's so much magic and conscious discomfort. Yeah, definitely. I wonder, you mentioned earlier divination. Could you speak a little bit more about what your your personal practice of divination is and what that yeah. looks like for you? Yeah, I um, I usually work with water, so, mm. so hydromancy or geomancy. I also work with like obsidian. I work with mm. other crystals. Um, and um, essentially I work with, with scrying, which is mm. a method where you're using a medium. So that medium can be water, it could be fire, it could be the clouds, it could be trees, it could be a crystal, as I said. And you're really using that medium to kind of get yourself into an altered state of consciousness and open up. And of course, doing it with protection, you're really invoking some spirit guides to help you. I think those are all really important things when you're opening yourself up in that way, mm-hmm. because I've also witness that you know it's a great time for spirits to come visit you and you really need to have that protection and um, really know that you're in a stable place to really be able to send them away if they need to be sent away you know and um, those are things I just like to name because I I've definitely worked with a lot of people and this is something that is pretty common to happen so I definitely love to um, I think it's important to name that and to bring that into the conversation but I um, have really received so many incredible powerful life-changing messages from these sessions and um, if you're someone who's interested in doing something like that um, I would highly recommend working during the void moon or also known as a dark moon that's a really powerful time in the month to really open up to the sacred void mm, okay what could so it's really important and for all our listeners, if, if you're sort of new to magic and exploring magic, definitely figure out what are your foundational safety practices to keep you grounded and, and, and safe as you're exploring, expanding, like we're saying, following your curiosity and your excitement and your pleasure. 
what would be once people have figured that out for themselves? Because I feel that that's very specific and personal. And I know I've said this a trillion times on the podcast, but let me just say it again. Please don't just go out and buy some Palo Santo or some white sage. They are over harvested and just not ethically used and probably most likely also not authentic to your lineage. So figure out what feels good to you. Again, go back to my episode of Reclamation, but figure out what your personal practices are. But once they've done that and they feel grounded and good, what would be some good ways to start exploring divination in a way that could feel really authentic to the individual? Yeah, I think really kind of this is a process and it's a practice, right? And I think it's as you kind of step into these practices, you notice what you enjoy, Mm -hmm. what makes sense for you. I'm someone who uh, receives a lot of information in these kind of altered states. And I receive a lot of information through sounds, through sensations, through images. Mm -hmm. And so since I know that about myself, I like create that space to just be able to receive. Mm -hmm. And then once I'm done with that, I love to write I love to draw and that's a way that I really also kind of allow the spirits to channel through me Mm. as well and so I see art practices as also oracular practices in many ways and so I know other people when they do divinatory practices they love to process by movement or uh, by um, speaking to someone so really I think that's where you get to really personalize it Mm. and what makes sense for you and how um, you really um, kind of receive those messages and so I think kind of knowing that about yourself I think a lot of people already have ways that they're doing divination work without (laughs) knowing um I definitely you know have people tell me like I spend hours just looking in the mirror just staring at my eyes and that's definitely a divination practice um or people who say like I can spend hours listening to the trees as the wind moves through them and those are all practices really of allowing awareness to kind of tune into a different frequency in many ways because I think a lot of us are in you know managerial language-based awarenesses a lot and that's what gets our bills paid and you know helps (laughs) us kind of navigate the world right but it's really about entering into those other forms of consciousness that can really open up so finding what does that for you you know and that can be so many things and really Mm -hmm. honoring that and kind of being okay with that too. I mean, that's why whenever I teach about divination, I try to just be really open and expansive Mm -hmm. because I know people really access the divine and make that connection in so many ways. And I just really am inspired by that because Mm -hmm. if you look at our um, collective history, it's also divination has been done with sticks, with rocks. It's been done with body movements. It's There's such such a beautiful diversity um, in divin- divinatory practices around the world. Mm. That's so lovely. And, it, and I'm really hearing a message that, again, I feel is woven through our conversation today of, of unpacking conditioning, whether that's, mm. you know, systemic structures, whether that's our own personal conditioning, but like how can we remove those layers so that we're a clearer channel, a vessel, a conduit, or whatever you want to say for connecting with the universe, whether that's through like ancestors or spirit guides. But so it sounds to me like you use divination, use sort of unconditioning to get to divination as a tool to really listen. Yeah. Yeah, to listen and connect. I think those are really important. And 
Yeah, and and creating structure is super important too, because structure is that safety and that container that you're building for yourself. And and I think that that's also where you get to have some fun too, is you get to create that structure for yourself and decide when you're going to bend that structure. Um, and 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 knowing that that's also really important too. Like we need to have scaffolding to be able to mm-hmm. kind of know where we can grow or what to transgress to, you know? Yeah, I love that. I feel your Virgo energy and your Gemini energy balancing there because it's like <laughs> we've got to create that structure of that like extending, protecting energy so that within that we can really flow and be in that receiving energy space. Yeah, definitely. Yes. This has been a huge conversation, really like powerful medicine. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to touch on that I've missed or that we've skipped over? I just want to kind of check in. Not that I know of. I feel like this all has felt really, yeah, really magical. And I am just so excited by some of the things that emerged that I feel like we weren't waiting for or expecting. I think that's so beautiful. Um, Yeah, I'm just so honored. And um, I just, yeah, I think one of the things that, you know, maybe we haven't touched a little bit on that I think is is here is that, you know, all these different practices um, are really pleasurable too. You know, Mm. divination to me is something that's so pleasurable and as is art making, community building. uh, Those are all things that I've really fought to kind of carve more room in my life for. And I'm so grateful to the communities that surround me that really support the work that I do to help um, kind of have me live this life where I'm able to be this person that's weaving all these connections together and living a life that feels more authentic and also that is really centering uh, pleasure in so many ways. And I think that is such a powerful uh, tool of liberation um, and to help guide people towards pleasure. I'm like crying now. (laughs) Oh man, that's so beautiful. Yeah, I really, um, my work uh, is as a pleasure mentor. So pleasure is a really big, important piece for me and also a big source of trauma. So I really appreciate you speaking on that. And I really, as someone that now pleasure is a big part of my magic, I feel that we can really find pleasure in grief and in discomfort and in growth um and it it can be a real compass for us in our work Mm. yeah thank you so much for naming that yeah that pleasure can be found in so much (laughs) and that that's really helping me redefine pleasure because I think yeah there there is so much pleasure and I've had so much pleasure in pushing myself in directions that feel scary that maybe my body might interpret as anxiety or my body might see in some ways as like uncomfortable and there's also so much pleasure in doing that and witnessing yourself go through something and kind of and being with yourself as you do that have that experience and being like oh my gosh I made it through that (laughs) god I wish that um self-celebration it was more common I want to encourage that in all people like I fucking did this awesome thing yes (laughs) like let us celebrate you I mean the most pleasurable this is such a controversial thing to say but the most pleasurable experience of my life has been being able to be a support person for my father as he transitioned out of his physical body. And not to say that it wasn't also the time that I experienced the most like profound grief and sadness and rage, but it was absolutely like unquestioningly to a different level and tier, the most pleasurable 
incredible experience of mm. my life. Thank you so much for sharing that. And yeah, yeah, there is something about um, that, you know, doula magic that you're yeah. sharing, right? That being able to be with someone in that place of transition, transformation, dissolution, right? You've brought that mm-hmm. word up too, that sacred dissolution also is something that is so expansive and that your body registers in yes. such profound ways. Yeah. And just, I think for me, what I've loved the most about my work is what a constant ego death it is. Like mm-hmm. being able to be like, this isn't me. Like we've said, this is me being able to create a container for you to do what you need to do and to trust that you're going to get those messages. And like, I don't know what better gift I could get in my job to constantly be reminded every day that it's nothing to fucking do with me. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Such a beautiful reminder. Yeah. And I think there is something so profound about that. I definitely know that feeling. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it, it is also something that I, I enjoy the most out of my art practice is Mm. um, being able to create a space where you're really just allowing someone's intuition to emerge. And yeah, that to me as an artist is one of the most exciting things is when I've crafted something and I witness something emerge in someone Mm. that is so powerful and profound. And as you said, I'm just stepping out of the way and I'm here celebrating you (laughs) and supporting you as this happens. And yeah. Bless the ego deaths. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. There's um I've been struggling on and off. It's been good for a few months now with a lot of anxiety around breath, which is interesting to me. And um I realized a couple of days ago, so for our listeners that don't know, like my issue has been that I keep slipping into an anxious pattern where I think I'm I'm breathe I'm breathing for myself. God, it's tiring. And uh I realized just a couple of days ago in my garden when I was watching some birds, like I'm not breathing I'm being breathed because otherwise I would die every time I went to sleep right and then I was thinking okay same for these anxious thoughts I'm not thinking anxious thoughts I'm being thought right like they're thinking me and as you're describing your art as that that same experience I was thinking I wonder if you're identified this is what a wacky question to ask you do you feel like you're making art or do you feel like you're being arted like you're arting yeah um yes uh it's so amazing you asked this question just because um that project gave us home spider that i brought up Mm. earlier Um, my ancestors told me about it about a year and a half before it happened Mm. and there was a moment where you know one of the big images they sent me in divinatory in a divinatory experience was myself dancing by the ocean and Mm. Year, a year and a half later, I was dancing by the ocean and had that moment of realization that it, you know, I was living out the messages and the dreams of my ancestors. And I think that is, I was being arted, you know, mm-hmm. I was, <laughs> I was following something and guiding. And I think um, if I want to live in a universe where that is how things work, you know, and I'm yes. choosing to live in a universe where, yeah, we are guided and held and also, um, yeah, where we are being breathed, you know, and where um, our consciousness, our mind, our awareness is so much more expansive than our body that we can 
receive messages from all over the place. And many times we are also here to be vessels, to be channels for other beings that are wanting to come through. And I think about that all the time as an artist, that I'm here to be a vessel. And Mm -hmm. I know it's those moments where I'm able to move out of the way and allow something to move through me, that those are those moments that are so magical and profound and you lose sense of time, you know, and you lose sense of everything. And yeah, I think those are those moments where you really do realize that um, this idea of an individual genius is really mm. such a Western concept yes. that we're an organism, you know? Yes, you're, you're not a genius. You're in that moment touching genius that is everywhere at every moment. Yes. <laughs> Yes. And that's something I, you know, recently I've been working a lot with plant magic and collaborating with plants and inviting them to guide me in my work. And the most recent project I did is called Todekis, T-O-D-X. And um, part of that project is I led people through a ceremony of connecting with a plant of their choice. And then people created artwork from that. And I'm such a big um, proponent of interspecies collaboration. I think it's a really powerful way of communing with plants and other, other beings as well. Wow, where can I listen to see that? Is that something that we're we're able to see, or is that kind of a closed private practice? Yeah, um, I have a, on my website, um, oh, on my website, edgarfabianfrias.org. Um, I do have a little bit more information on that project and I'm still, I have a few images that I'm going to be uploading there as, uh, as well, but there are videos there now that show a little Beautiful. bit of this um, practice if people want to see that. I, yeah, I'd love to see that. That sounds amazing. I feel like I could chat to you all day, but of course I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, We always ask the same question in the close of our podcast, and I'm so curious to hear your answer, which is if you could tell your younger self one thing, one piece of advice, what would it be? (laughs) So I would say to myself, um, Take a moment and appreciate how beautiful you are, how precious you are, how precious your being is. And know that all the dreams you have inside, all the visions and the hopes, they're real. And you are not alone. You are a part of a web of energy that is so much vaster then you can understand in this moment and that's okay. Let yourself just feel it. Oh, <laughs> Edgar's got me crying twice now today. <laughs> I know that time isn't linear and every young and old person and everything in between and beyond that needed to hear that, heard that. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for that question. I could feel my older self receiving it. So (laughs) I love it. I love doing um, time magic. It's just embracing time as nonlinear has been such a big relief to me in my life. Oh my goodness. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. The magic of time travel and and being able to, yeah, be that person that you needed at a younger age is such a huge gift. And I'm so glad to be that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And to know that, yeah, our future self is looking back on us even now and smiling and sending us information now too. (laughs) Mm, So true. Thank you so much for coming on and being with us in this time today. I really appreciate it and appreciate you. 
Thank you so much. It's been an honor and I'm so honored to connect with your community. And thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. The Sex Magic Podcast is more than just a podcast. We are a collective, a community, a conversation. If what we do here resonates with you, I'd like to invite you to join us on Patreon. But what even is Patreon? It's an online platform where you can directly support artists and creators. In exchange, you receive exclusive benefits. It's a direct form of energetic exchange. If you'd like to join us on Patreon, we have some incredible monthly benefits, such as live Q&As where you can ask us questions every month and tune in to get them all answered. We also have an incredible Discord community where you can connect with other people around the world and talk about things within the realm of sexuality and spirituality, along with monthly resources, rituals, tarot insight, and crystal guides to help further your spiritual path. So if you'd like to support us and show us how much you appreciate the work that we do with the Sex Magic Podcast, I invite you to check out our Patreon. We have the link down in the show notes, but you can also go on patreon.com slash sexmagicpodcast.